0: Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Cults, cons, conspiracies. These are a few of my favorite things. No, but seriously, (laughs) Books about cults, cons, and conspiracies are some of my all-time favorites. So for our summer limited edition quarterly box, we've bundled three cults, cons, and conspiracy books to share with you for a limited time. The first book is Hey Hun, Sales, Sisterhood, and Supremacy, and the Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing by Emily Lynn Paulson, the juicy tell-all memoir from a former top earner in a popular MLM. Because nothing says cults and cons quite like network sales. The next book in this bundle is Yellow Face by R.F. Kwong, which is sure to be on the bestsellers list when it releases in May. This scathing takedown of publishing and publicity is perfect for readers tapped into the book internet, and anyone who loves an accidental con artist. Is June Song a con artist or a conspiracist, you tell me? Finally, we're featuring a book that's currently in development for film, The Honeys by Ryan Lasala. This is like midsummer meets Mean Girls with a lovable, gender-fluid teen at the center of a cult-like group of teen girls with conspiracies right under their noses. Pre-orders for our Cults, Cons, and Conspiracies box opens on May 1st for shipment by June 1st, and we'll only have 100 of these boxes. So make sure you order yours ASAP, no subscription required. Head to feministbookclub.com to pre-order yours today.
1: Hello, Feminist Book Club listeners. My name is Alana Amor-Colvin. I am a content contributor for Feminist Book Club. And today we're going to be talking with Juliana Pache, a social media icon, a jewelry connoisseur, a crossword puzzle aficionado. How are you doing today? And will you please let our viewers know who you are and what you do?
2: Well, first of all, that was a lovely introduction. Um, I'm doing well. I think you described it very well. I create jewelry with my jewelry business, Pache Studio. Everything's handmade. I started Black Crossword earlier this year. And so far we have mini puzzles only, but eventually we will get to the the larger standard size puzzles. Black Crossword is a daily mini crossword puzzle. A new one appears every day at midnight. Um, and each crossword focuses on clues and terms from across the Black diaspora. And that's what we're here to talk about today. You talk about the
1: importance of including the African diaspora. What was the importance of evolving the diaspora rather than focusing centrally on African-American culture?
2: Yeah, so I am of the diaspora. I'm a Black Caribbean woman. So I've kind of always viewed Blackness as a kaleidoscope of cultures within Black culture. So I felt like it was really important to highlight Black people globally. A lot of Black American history is so tied up in Black Caribbean history as well. There are so many Black Caribbeans and Black Latin Americans and Black South Americans who've migrated to this country, who've made an impact on the culture here and vice versa in totality. I mean, it's it's such a symbiotic cultural relationship. So I felt like it only made sense to do it that way. And how do you pull
1: this sort of, this history into the actual puzzles? Is it a language thing? Is it a topic thing?
2: A lot of it is kind of, practical in that so for example one thing i did before i even started constructing each puzzle is i made a word library so there are a bunch of crossword word libraries floating around the internet that are free to use but i knew that a, a lot of the terms that i would include in these puzzles wouldn't probably wouldn't be in those libraries so i started to create my own so i was in the library very often looking through a bunch of Black history books from music to fashion to culture to sports and just accumulating a word library. So I have like thousands of words in this long list. And that would help me pull terms for the puzzles. And then at the same time, there are a bunch of very common words that we just use differently. Um, So one example is the word edges. Like that would be in any word library for sure, but how I would use it for these puzzles is completely different. And then another example is the word red. In a prior puzzle, I've used that to to reference Malcolm X's nickname Detroit Red when he was growing up. There's so many different ways to to build these out, but those are the two main ways that I think about it. And so you make
1: the puzzles yourself. Yes. And what is that like?
2: At first, it was much more challenging than I thought it was going to be because I had never made a puzzle before I had the idea to do this. So it was only after I established, OK, I'm going to do this. I'm, I submitted the trademark application. I bought the domain names. I formed the LLC. And it was only after that that I was like, oh, I should probably f- try to figure out how to create these puzzles. So at first it was very challenging, but eventually I got the hang of it. And now I'm kind of more in a flow state and I can build them fairly quickly. It's, I mean, and they're small, so that makes it a little bit easier. But in terms of figuring out clues and references, that part is probably the easiest part for me. Because one, just being Black in America, there, there's so much written richness in our culture to pull from. It's in the way that we speak. It's in the, the music we listen to. It's just kind of everywhere. So there's that. And then there's also, I worked in the library in high school. And that's where I started to really develop kind of a thirst for knowledge about the Black diaspora. So I worked there, but I also had my maximum limit of checked item checked out constantly. So I was just like constantly immersing myself in learning about our cultures. And then in college, I went to Temple University and I worked in the Paley Library. It's taught something else now. I was just like immersing myself in, in our cultures. Can you explain
1: Crossword to listeners?
2: Yeah, well, I actually was just invited to Crossword the week that I launched Black Crossword. And so I have a very novice perspective on crossword. Someone else who's been in there much longer might have a different perspective, but from a novice perspective, it seems like a super supportive community of crossword solvers and builders. They were so supportive when I launched this and still have been. It's a really supportive place. People give feedback on puzzles there they share their completion times and things like that. Well, that sounds like a lovely community that I had no prior knowledge on. Yeah, I had no idea. Like the crossword community rolls deep. I can see that though,
1: the Discord and the Reddit communities tend to be very, very tight in their respective places in the world.
2: Yes. So the New York Times does a crossword fellowship and I didn't get accepted into the fellowship program, but they have seminars where people who didn't make it into the fellowship program, they can sit on sit in on these seminars and kind of learn some tips and tricks on crossword puzzle building. That was super helpful. And it was a little bit full circle because I got the idea to do Black Crossword when I was doing the New York Times mini. And I was stuck on something and I felt like the, I felt like the clue was a little bit like, I was kind of like, this is not really catered towards me. And, and to a certain extent, that's, that's fine. I mean, it's mostly fine because that's kind of the, the beauty of a puzzle is you get to learn things, but that is where I got the idea. Like it would be so cool if this was catered towards black people.
1: And crossword puzzles are sort of like a niche facet of the world. What was the importance of bringing diversity into this particular community? Or what's the importance of just diversity in far of media that we don't necessarily think of first?
2: Yeah, when I had the idea, I I hadn't thought about that really at all. Like I hadn't thought about it on a macro scale. I really was was just like, I enjoy crossword puzzles. I think they're fun. They don't take very long. I would like to see a crossword puzzle that was dedicated towards Black culture and Black people. And I think other people will like that too. And it's it only been after its launch where I started to think about it on a macro level. And something that people tell me all the time is well, Black people tell me all the time who are using this platform. They say, I'm usually not good at crossword puzzles, but I'm good at this puzzle. And I think a lot of that is because it's catered towards us. So in that way, I think it's unique and fun for people who maybe it otherwise wouldn't have been fun for. And it's also a pretty beautiful thing to... Do something as simple as a crossword puzzle and feel your culture reflected back onto you.
1: Do you have any advice for people who want to get into crossword puzzles but find them difficult or like someone who's been trying to do crossword puzzles and aren't very successful at them?
2: I would say start with minis. Obviously, I have a mini that comes out every day. I would say do that. You can do the New York Times mini. USA Today has a great mini. So I would say start small and then work your way up.
1: What has been the general response to Black Crossword Puzzle?
2: It's mostly been very positive. Yeah, I would say it's pretty much almost all positive. Well, that's good. There's a little part
1: of me that sort of braces itself for a large negative response in situations where people of color are creating spaces for themselves. Just in general, but especially in a place where we're not necessarily thought of first. And so it's really great when there's just, that just doesn't happen. There's not like a weird Twitter war over crossword puzzles when you can just enjoy the crossword puzzle.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's, it's wholesome and straightforward enough to hopefully avoid some of that. But I'm sure that I might get something wrong. The most controversial thing that I think I've ever done was just misspell someone's name. But that's kind of an easy fix. So knock on wood, hopefully (laughs) it stays at that level.
3: (laughs) So what, I know you have
1: future plans for Black Crossword Puzzle. What part of that can you share with us
2: now? Yeah, so I'm working on Crossword Puzzle books. So I'm working with an agent right now and we're just kind of getting all the creative ideas in a more solidified place. That'll be coming soon. At some point, we're going to launch weekly standard size crossword puzzles. And that will be via a subscription. But the minis will always be free. We're really just focused on growing. I'm still trying to figure out the financing model. But... Definitely interested in finding some investors who might be interested in growing this with me. But I would say that's about it so far. Question that just popped into my
1: head. Do you ever intend on making it an app? And if not, or currently, how well does Black Crossword Puzzle translate to like the mobile screen?
2: Yeah, so there aren't plans to turn it into an app as of yet, just because that's kind of its own beast in terms of executing on that idea. I do see us doing that eventually. But for now, the minis fit pretty nicely on a mobile screen and on, on desktop as well.
1: Thank you so much for talking with us. Would you like to share with us where your listeners can find you and or Black Crossword puzzle?
2: Yes. So Black Crossword is blackcrossword.com. Our Instagram is just at blackcrossword. Our Twitter is Black underscore password, and then my my social media handles are at the city of jewels, and that's J U L E S. All right, thank you so much for talking with us. Great, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem.
4: Hi, my name is Ashley, a feminist book club content contributor, and I am joined today with Aparna <laughs> Parthasarathy. She is a rising senior in New Jersey. She is an executive member of her school's Model UN. She worked with women weavers in Peru. Her personal observations and research are in her book, Tales of the Invisible. And she joins us in a conversation about human rights, women empowerment, and Gen Z's voice for feminism. Aparna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My first question for you is: What is your definition of feminism?
3: I would have to say that my definition of feminism would just be true equality on all fronts. In order to understand what true equality is, we need to understand that feminism has evolved over time, and there's many different strands, theories, and movements. But at at its core, it's all about creating a culture and creating society where women are equal to men, especially in a world where men often try to suppress women and try to force their voices into complete silence. Um, So I believe that feminism, at its truth, is empowering women and creating a system where women can be equal to men and can fight for themselves without having to look to anyone else for permission and without having to even, without having to rely on anyone else for basic fundamental rights that they are often lacking.
4: And what are the biggest challenges facing women today and what can be done to address them?
3: So I would say, especially considering what has been happening in the past year, one of the biggest challenges facing women today is definitely abortion and reproductive rights. Considering the repeal of Roe v. Wade and all the different reproductive rights and different reproductive laws that are going on, it's so important that we acknowledge the fact that women need to have the same control over their bodies that men can you don't see the government banning banning different male reproductive methods and diff- you don't see them banning condoms or different forms of male birth controls. And I would say that one of the best ways to address this would just be get more representation for women within the government system. Government is such a male dominated space. And I've seen this firsthand interning with different political offices It's so male-dominated and there's so many male legislators and male representatives that don't understand how the female body works and how important that reproductive rights are to women. And it's so important that we empower these women to find a role and find a place for themselves within the government to create laws that can help women at its core because they understand the issues and they know what's going on. Um, And I would say also going along with that would end reproductive rights would have to be period poverty. especially with the pink tax and everything that's happening Mm -hmm. with different menstrual products. It's, it's shocking the lack of care that a lot of women have access to just because of their economic status. And just because that their gender forces them to have an extra dollar, extra $2 added to their necessary goods and and their taxes, if they're a luxury item, even though they truly are not. And One of the best ways I would think would be to solve this is just to help is to help donate unused goods to help empower women. And to again, like go to your local government representatives to go to people that to people to advocate for these women, to advocate for the banning of the pink tax and to help women who are in these positions where they cannot afford basic menstrual products to to find ways to be able to help them buy Even if it's by donating, by using war privilege, another issue that I am also quite passionate about would be domestic violence and the ongoing crisis with women, especially women within my community, within the South Asian diaspora. Domestic violence is so rampant, especially amongst immigrants, first generation, second generation immigrants, children of immigrants. It's so apparent because it's so rooted within the culture. And oftentimes women... Do not feel comfortable enough to speak out in a community community where this is so normalized. And I've worked with women throughout my township, throughout my community, to help destigmatize what is domestic violence and to empower victims to share their stories, as well as using my position as a high school student to try and try and stop the spread of domestic violence. To try and stop the message by teaching like middle schoolers and informing high schoolers as to like what teen dating violence is and yeah. to stop at its root before it becomes normalized and for women start thinking that he's just shown that he loves me by hitting me and simple things like that where we can open a dialogue where that allow women to share their stories and to let them know that their voices are important at the end of the day. And doing this can help create shelters and allow women to have access to resources mm-hmm. Whether it be physical or mental, to help them combat the trauma that they have faced at the hands of their abusers.
4: So, how do gender, race, class, and other factors intersect to shape women's experiences?
3: I think this entire question is based off of just the general intersectionality of feminism. And that's mainly what my book talks about because it covers like four different women in different areas of life. They're different age groups. They come from different countries. They have different backgrounds. And it just shows the common trauma that they all face, even despite having different issues and being in different situations. They are all ruled by the fact that they live in this patriarchal society and how it impacts them. And it also shows that the strength that they have as women have to overcome these challenges, no matter where they live or no matter who they are. When I think of the differences and of how, like, Things like race and class come to shape women's experiences. Oftentimes, women of color face a lot more discrimination than white women do simply because of their race. For example, women who belong to a marginalized racial or ethnic group, they experience discrimination on the basis of both their gender and their race. They might be perceived as too assertive if they speak up compared to a white woman speaking up and their voices are often not ready to be heard by a society like this. In a similar manner, women from, let's say, like a lower socioeconomic background, which they oftentimes happen to be women of color as well, they face more economic and social barriers when, when trying to deal with feminist issues such as things like period poverty. They are prevented from accessing proper education and healthcare and other resources that women of a higher class, women of a better socioeconomic background are able to access. And this just perpetuates a cycle of poverty that will continue for many, many years because these women are not empowered to be able to access things that they need to and that that they have a right to access. And oftentimes their voices are also silenced simply because of the position that they were born into or because of things they cannot control, such as like the job cycle and the supply chain and things cause just people in general to be laid off and to fall into positions of unemployment and which just lead them to lacking resources that they need to survive. A lot of times, women from these backgrounds, they're not guaranteed the same rights that, Let's say, like a white woman of a very high background is able to have, they're doubted more when it comes to speaking out. If they do use their voice and they're silenced more just because of their identity and because of who they are. And another aspect of culture and race, your culture often impacts how you view feminism and the problems that you face. As as a woman of color, as a South Asian woman, the problems that I see within my community are completely different than. One of any other race, any other ethnicity will see. And the problem that I really see in the South Asian community is a lot of these issues are normalized. They're shown on TV, they're shown in movies, and no one is truly talking about it because there is a certain culture of subservience and of silencing women. And that's why it's so important that the younger generation comes and is able to speak up about it, especially growing up here in America, where we're often more empowered to say things than we would be back in whatever whatever country our parents came from and it's just so important that we recognize the cultural aspect of feminism and how not everyone's perspectives will be the same because of their background and that's why it's so important that we empower every woman no matter their race their class their gender to be able to speak up and to truly give their perspective on an issue because there are so many sides to a singular story.
4: And how have women's issues in different parts of the world been impacted by colonialism and globalization?
3: This is definitely an issue that is very close to my heart, especially within women of color with just in general, I I would say with the Eurocentric beauty standards that we see a lot on social media, and just in general in life, when women are often subjugated to harsher beauty standards than men are. And as a woman of color, you see that white women with more Eurocentric features are seen more in media simply because of their race. And that comes from colonialism and comes from globalization. In a lot of communities, like bleaching skin and fair skin is seen as more desirable. Just because of a history of colonialism where white people were seen as superior to whatever indigenous race was within that community or within that country at the time. And it's so important. We try to redefine ourselves and to let go of the definitions that Western groups often imposed on certain cultures, on certain people. And we let go of those definitions and allow ourselves to be defined by what we truly think that we are instead of perpetuating the impacts of colonialism. It's so important that we, that we empower ourselves and we take a step back and we look at our culture from our perspectives and from, and from a thankful perspective, rather than from seeing it from the perspective of a white person, perspective from someone who used to diminish, especially cultural women, because they saw themselves as the superior white male. These issues are still rampant today, this again why one of the reasons that women of color are often silenced because again because of the impacts of colonialism and globalization and then white men specifically saying that that women of color are often less worthy of time of effort and just and they don't put as much effort into their education into their empowerment and to helping them thrive as people and where does your passion where human rights, female empowerment, and social activism stem from? In my first interaction with feminism and female empowerment, it was during a school project when I was in fourth grade. I was 10, and my school had this project where we had to research a certain figure that had a heavy impact on our society. But to me, it meant so much more because The person that I chose to research was Malala Yousafzai. And that's when I first learned about the entire feminist movement. I think she had just recently gotten her Nobel Peace Prize sometime around then. It's probably still one of my favorite projects just because of the amount with which I learned. As a 10-year-old, you know, you don't see the issues that plague our society today. That project really showed me, like, this is what the world is like. And this is the world that we're living in. It's so important that we have people that can change it. And this in general just led to my passion for advocacy, especially within the government. I have done a lot of campaigning specifically for female legislators, for women of color uh, within my community, within the state. Campaigning is probably my favorite thing that I've ever done because I talk to a lot of individuals who would, who were just happy to, again, just to talk to someone on the phone and to understand that someone was listening to their issues and was willing to work with them to solve a problem that they had. And especially working for women of color, I learned the importance of representation. My township is so diverse. And oftentimes our legislators and our representatives, they don't represent the community that got them elected. And talking to these people face-to-face in parts of my town that I didn't even know existed and talking to them and hearing their stories about how they felt like their voices were silenced because the people who were supposed to be working for them weren't, they were focusing on issues that weren't regarding what the constituents want and they were focusing on furthering their personal agenda. And that really got me passionate about social activism, about human rights, and just about the importance that government has and how it's important that government can unite people. And oftentimes it does not do that. And that's why it's so important that we get their representation in government, especially with women, because women's issues are not not brought towards, towards the government. They're not brought into action because our representatives, our legislators, our government officials don't represent that population because most of them are white men, essentially. In order for female empowerment, social activism, things like that, I worked with women in Peru, with these weavers, and that essentially inspired my entire book. They lived near the Andes, and they created these tapestries that were so incredibly beautiful. And this is an art that had been passed down from their mothers, from their grandmothers, and it was so integ- integral to their lives, to into their culture, to their community. And the beauty of these societies was that these women were the breadwinners of their families, and they were not Being empowered in many families because because they were seen as better than men, essentially, because they were the ones that were making the money. Oftentimes, tourist companies wouldn't come to them because they were women, because they were not seen as trustworthy enough when they were bringing in these Western tour groups. And so I worked with these women to get them access to an international community through social media, through international grants, things like that. And I worked with them to allow them to really showcase their products and to showcase the beauty in what they do. And it showed me how important it is that when we are considering feminism, when we're considering advocacy and helping other people, that we give people the help that they want, the help help that they need rather than what we perceive that they need. Oftentimes, especially when coming from a Western perspective, coming from a more developed country, a more developed community, we believe that that women just need education, and we mm-hmm. tend to just push this whole thing of education, 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 p- putting women in school without truly seeing what is actually happening in those communities and understanding the beauty is of what they do. The women that I worked with, a lot of them, they didn't want to become doctors or lawyers or engineers. They just wanted the chance to be able to do their art, make these beautiful tapestries to capture their surroundings and to be able to provide for their families. And it was not oppressive in any way. And they felt empowered to, and it was all about empowering them to make the decisions that they see fit instead of forcing them into a position that I, from a Western perspective, think is better for them. It's so important that we take into consideration so many perspectives and because it truly is intersectional and there's so many sides to every story. That's what I really learned from the culmination of all my experiences is just the importance of representation because it's so important that we empower every single woman out there to be able to share their story and to find the help that they need. We're seeing the power of Gen Z's voice either
4: as newer voters, a generation who will become voters. What can Gen Z offer to the feminist movement and how have you seen this in play?
3: Like you said, with social media, I think that's the biggest thing that Gen Z has. I cannot remember a time where I didn't have access to technology at my fingertips, even if it was restricted, but just the amount of knowledge that we've always had. While there are negatives to social media, the power that it has in reaching so many communities is outstanding, it promotes interconnectedness, and which is so important when solving these issues when considering a feminist movement which truly impacts all women everywhere. And it's so helpful, especially when regarding things like protests, let's say. When, when Roe v. Wade happened, when the repeal happened, so many women took to the streets, took to advocating for their opinions and for making their opinions known. Social media truly did help that movement along, truly made sure that those protests came to fruition because it allowed for that message to be spread quicker than ever before. And it shows that, like, in the future, we're not afraid to tackle big issues because we have this powerhouse that is technology, that is social media behind us to help make our dreams a reality. Essentially, it educates others on these issues and allows them to become advocates and to create future advocates to solve these issues eventually.
4: Yes. I agree about the social media piece. I think it has its pros and its cons, but I also have watched Gen Z use it in a positive way to empower people, empower their peers, empower adults. You know, you have a lot of older adults who are like, oh, kids don't know anything or young people don't know anything. And then you have people who are like, young people are going to save the world. I'm not really for the whole young people saving the world because it's it's a lot of responsibility on people who are still learning, but never feel unempowered by your voice. You all know what you're doing. So it's not up to you all to save the world, but you all are here and you are doing the best that you can and beyond. I mean, look at someone like Maxwell Frost, who is one of the representatives from Florida. Was just elected in the election last year and was the first Gen Z candidate, and you know is is now in office. I just want to share with our listeners that Aparna pitched to us an email of what she wanted to talk about. It was so succinct yet thorough, and just sharing her accomplishments with our audience. I encourage you all to pick up her
0: book, which I will link in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today. you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is and check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a